0: Let's now give our attention to the readings from God's Word. Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forests sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall.
1: Epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a new book, a new letter revealed by you, we ask for your help. Give us your spirit for understanding and applying these words that you have given to us. We ask you to speak. For your servants are listening. Amen. During my years in Washington, D.C., one of my colleagues and I adopted a Thursday afternoon ritual. We ran down the National Mall from our office and would return. As many of you know, I'm a creature of habit, and one of those habits that I like to develop is some rituals that allow me to have shared experiences with other people. And this was a sacred appointment each week. My friend Matthew and I would run the five miles from our office down Maryland Avenue, past the Capitol, through the Washington Monument to the Lincoln. We would take a break on the steps and then we would run back. It was a time for us to decompress from the week. We would work through our sermons and our personal lives, everything that was happening. On one of these Thursdays, We had just come around the Washington Monument, we crossed 14th Street there, and a young couple who was rather distressed stopped us. They had to interrupt us, stepped in front of us with something urgent, and the young man, he asked me, he said, do you know where the National Mall is? It was difficult. As someone who lived in Washington, you become greatly irritated with visitors. And that's not a good thing. And so I patiently had to try to explain that the National Mall was where he was standing. And he said, You mean there's no food court? There, there's there's no shopping, there's no stores to, to go into. And said, No, that the National Mall is a plaza. And do you see the Capitol building? And do you see the monument, the Washington Monument? And do you see the Smithsonian's and, and the Lincoln and the World War II Memorial and the White House? It's right there. <laughs> You're in the middle of it all. That This National Mall is better than any shopping center. Obviously, my new friend did not know what to look for. Didn't know what to expect, and he was missing it because of that. He had completely missed it. And friends, this is the fear for us in the church as well. Here where we have everything, we have all the promises of God, everything that God extends to us and gives us, we're caught up in the middle of it, and yet caught up in the middle of it, standing in it, we can completely miss it. We don't know what we're looking for, we don't know what to expect all the time, and we miss it, and this is what happened in Galatia. That was a political area, uh, area in the New Testament where there were several churches that Paul planted in Acts chapter 14. You can read about them. It's the cities of Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. Paul establishes these churches, and then shortly after his departure, they begin to bra- embrace another gospel. They begin to believe and to trust in something else. And Paul writes one of what we believe is one of the first epistles of the New Testament to sort out this mess that was taking place because he knows that we can miss the gospel, we can undervalue it, we can subvert it, we can even leave it behind. And so at a high pitch, in a very polemical, what some would consider to be rude and perhaps not belonging in church, Paul goes after it. He comes after the Galatians with words of consolation and challenge. He comes with comfort, but also firmness. He comes with power and persuasion, with force and ferocity. Paul knows that everything is on the line for this community. And he doesn't want them to miss it. And God doesn't want us to miss it either to be standing in the middle of all the reality and not know where we are and not know how to appreciate it. So what does God, in all the critiques and affirmations that we're going to see over these next six chapters, what does God want us to know about the gospel? There's four things that Paul introduces here in these first ten verses that he will expand upon and build throughout the letter. But four things that we'll emphasize this morning about what God wants us to know about his gospel. The first is this. We see that the gospel reveals the plan of God to us. Notice where Paul begins. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul explains that his apostleship, an apostle is just simply a delegate, a representative who carries the authority of the one who sends him, a witness of the risen Christ who now goes out as a delegated authority who has authorization to speak on behalf of the one who sent him. And he says, this is who I am, a delegated authority. And then if you look in verse 12, he further explains that. He says, For I did not receive it, speaking of the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is explaining here that he received from God what he was now preaching. That his knowledge of God and his understanding of the gospel was not a result of him cobbling it together. And friends, this understanding of how we receive the knowledge of God, is very different from the way that the modern Western world thinks of understanding God. Over the past 200 years, what has been at work is a process of understanding how we assimilate theological knowledge and how we know God. And we believe that we come to the knowledge of God through a growing and developing process. That God has left behind a a crumb trail in which we're then to pull it together. And so humanity has been on this this track where we're moving from polytheism to monotheism. And now we're clarifying the ideas of who this god is, but we are pulling it together. And so theology is a human project. This is what most would tell us today. But in Christianity it's very different. It's not that we pull it together as a human project and ascend up to God and explain to him who he is. But rather in Christianity, it's revealed to us that it comes down to us, that it descends, that God must tell us who he is and how we can rightly relate to him. He doesn't leave it for us to figure it out. And this is what Paul is saying happens through his message as an apostle that he is revealing to us what God's plan is and what God specifically is doing in his world about the problem of corruption and sin and iniquity. Because specifically, the revelation that Paul speaks about is about the plan of God to deliver us. It is an unfolding of the will of God. Note what he says as he moves on in verse 1. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our god and father and this is what paul sees himself as now unfolding That he is now preaching, putting into human words the eternal plan of God to unite all things in heaven and on earth and to deliver sinners from their sins. That he is now unfolding this for all of creation. That this plan involves certain facts. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus goes under the curse of the old age in order to bring forth a new age. That he takes on the weight of sin, goes down into death, and rises again. And Paul sees himself as announcing that. As heralding the good news that was for all the nations, for all the peoples. That there was hope for everyone. Because Christ bore sins on our behalf. And that he was raised again from the dead. And people do wonder at times why Paul seems a bit rude. As we'll see later on in the book, he gets fairly direct. One of the issues that was going on is that some Jewish Christians were telling Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. And Paul says very directly that he wishes that they would have a slip of the knife and just cut off the whole lot of it. That's what he says. Friends, it can feel rude. Why in the world does he speak so graphically? Why would Paul talk in such filthy ways? You have to ask yourself the question if you're reading this Bible. And friends, he goes so direct because he sees that everything, absolutely everything is at stake. You see, he doesn't understand religion. It's just a quadrant of your life that will make you a better person, a self-actualized person, and fill you out and round you up. No, he sees that the gospel he is preaching is absolutely everything. That it is your entire life. It's your only hope. That it's not a piece to a life well lived, but it is a life. It offers you life and hope before God. And so when something begins to challenge that gospel, Paul goes out at it as directly and ferociously and powerfully as he knows how. And he wants us to waken up to open our eyes, to see all that is ours. It's like we're standing in the middle of the National Mall and we're asking the question, where is it? And he's saying, open up your eyes. Look and see at the grandeur of this, the plan, the will of God held in his eternal counsel, now unfolding through Jesus, him going down into death, rising again from the dead to conquer over sins, to deliver us from the present evil age in order to bring us into God's new creation and to give us the hope of the world to come. This is what Paul says is happening now through the preaching of the gospel. The second thing that we see, though, we see that the gospel also unfolds the purpose of God for his world. There is a very specific and particular controversy that undergirds this letter, and it's important for us to understand it. We'll rehearse it several times over the weeks to come. But this letter, this epistle, is written on the eve of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 14, we learn of Paul's missionary activity to the Galatian churches where he preaches the gospel, and there are Jewish and Gentile converts. But after he departs, there is a company of Jewish Christians who come back to the churches. And they say to those Gentile converts that they must circumcise themselves and accept the Jewish law, the Torah, to fully come into the Christian community. That was the other gospel that was being preached. So if you truly want to convert, you need to become a Jew. You can't remain a Gentile. This controversy is not actually settled until Acts chapter 15, when Paul goes to Jerusalem. But it leads to a fight in the early church. And sometimes people say, oh, I just want to return to a first century church. That is about the most ignorant statement you can ever mutter. It was a mess. It was the Wild West. They are trying to work out how this stuff is supposed to work, and God reveals how it is to work. He shows, and what Paul does as he writes to these Gentile Christians is brilliant. You'll notice in verse three, or excuse me, in verse two, he says to the churches of Galatia. Now the word church here is a loaded one. Because in the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, the word that's used there is the same word that's used here. It means assembly. And it referred in the Old Testament to the assembly of God's covenant people, of his people who had been called out and elected and set apart by sacrifice, that these were God's people. That was the church. And then here, Paul uses the same language, to the churches of Galatia. In other words, he's saying there's a continuity now between what was ethnic and by faith in the Old Testament, now is non-ethnic and by faith in the New Testament, that these two bodies are the same. And then you notice how he moves on in verse 3, grace to you and peace from who? God, our Father. He's saying that, yes, now the church is Jew plus Gentile. That there are no boundaries of race. To God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for what? Our sin. Who gave himself for our sins, Jew and Gentile, to deliver who? Us. From the present evil age. That Paul goes to great lengths To explain that the Gentiles have now been grafted in and brought in as part of the family through the deliverance of Jesus Christ. And that God's family is now made up of Jew and Gentile from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that the qualification is faith in this Christ who died and rose again. He's unfolding the purposes of God for the world. And he wants us to see it. That the plan of God is not just for our individual salvation. That God does save us as individuals and he draws us into a family. And it's a family that will come from across the globe. And the one point of standing is faith in Christ. It's not whether we submit to a Jewish law. It's not whether we become Jews. But the point of standing is faith in Christ. And this is the purpose of God. The third thing that we see here, though, is we see that the gospel relativizes our achievements and accolades. That the gospel relativizes our achievements and accolades. And In verses 6 through 10, Paul begins to build his argument against this different gospel. He expresses that he is astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Typically, Paul opens his letter with a thanksgiving. He expresses how grateful he is for the churches. And you notice that that is starkly absent here. That he just goes straight in after it. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him. Why is this happening? That you've embraced a different gospel. And you have to feel some pity for these Gentile Christians... Paul comes through, they hear the preaching of the gospel, they convert and believe, and then another group of missionaries arrive, and they say that these Gentile Christians need to accept circumcision and to come fully under the Jewish Torah, the law. They need to observe kosher laws, that they need to keep the Jewish Sabbath, that they need to do these things in order to fully be Christian, This would have been appealing from what we know of the ancient religious world, that these Gentiles, prior to their conversion, they were part of various different religious cults. And those religious cults involved elaborate initiation procedures in which you were brought into levels of the community. And there were various levels. And so it would have sounded very familiar to them. That yes, we were brought in by baptism, but now we have to go under another initiation rite. And we will go deeper into these mysteries. It would have been familiar to them. But what is taking place here with this different gospel is that you have something being added to the gospel as necessary for standing in front of God. You have an achievement or you have an accolade. You have something else that you need in order to have a right standing with God. And Paul is saying that that is no gospel at all. You see, the church has been plagued by two things. You could call it gospel subtractions and gospel additions. Tim Keller, in a recent New York Times article, was interviewed by Nicholas Kristoff. He's a writer for the Times. And Kristoff asked Tim Keller, he says... Now, if I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, can I still be a Christian? I'm attracted to the teachings of Jesus. I find it fairly compelling. But can I still be called a Christian if I don't share the creedal beliefs? Tim Keller wisely answered the question. He says, well, you know, if I were a member of Greenpeace but didn't share their primary platform, could I really say I'm still a member of Greenpeace? If I didn't believe in the environment, if I didn't believe in peace, if I didn't support the cause, could I really say that I belong with Greenpeace? And the point was clear. And that has been the work uh, that has afflicted the church for hundreds of years, gospel subtractions, things that are taken away, that no, you don't need to believe that in order to truly be a Christian. It's unhelpful. Obviously, there are beliefs, things that we must confess, creedal beliefs that we hold about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his incarnation coming into the world and his return. That these things aren't negotiable for us. But also, what's not negotiable are additions to the gospel, not just subtractions from it, but additions to it. And what takes place in Galatia and what goes on in most churches are additions. That yes, subtractions are a real and true problem, but the additions perhaps plague us more. That conservative Christians, that we are the ones who are very fond of these additions, adding things that you must do in order to really belong. For some conservative churches, that means that there are certain moral behaviors that you simply must not engage in, even though the Bible doesn't forbid them. And so there was a long, unwritten code of behaviors that were added to conversion. That if you really got it, if you were really converted, you would do this. In some charismatic churches, what was added on was that you must speak in tongues, that if you've really been converted and you really met the Holy Ghost, then you must do this. I was trolling through Facebook over the holiday season, which is never advisable. And I saw that a pastor friend had posted an article. And the article was about what the automobile was doing to American life. So was a negative critique of the car. And I looked down below the article where people began commenting. And I saw that another pastor, who I don't know that well, we're acquaintances, he had posted a comment. He is from New York City. And what he said was, I don't believe in automobiles. I haven't owned one for 11 years. And you could feel the self-righteousness dripping off of it. I don't believe, I'm not sure what that means to say that you don't believe in automobiles. Do you believe in the milk that arrived in your grocery store? You know how that got there. But um, I digress. Um, <laughs> But you could feel the statement, thank God I'm not like those other sinners. And friends, we're bad about this. This is perhaps the church's Achilles heel. That whether it be progressive or old fundamentalist, we like to construct identities. Things that we do that make us superior to others so that we can look down on them in snide ways. That they don't quite get it and they don't belong. That's what had happened after Paul departed from Galatia. Things had been added to the gospel in order to really belong to the community, in order to really belong to God. And Paul will not have any of it What he believes is that through Jesus' death and through Jesus' resurrection, when we place our faith with him, our sins are condemned in Jesus' death. And then that we share in Christ's resurrection and we have a new identity in front of God. That rather than being labeled sinners in front of God, which we actually are, we are now considered to be righteous. And this is God's gift to us. The language he uses is that we are justified, made right with God. Not by anything that we do. That Christianity is not about what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. That great plan of his will, hidden in the mystery of the ages that's now being unfolded to deliver us from the present evil age. This is what Paul goes to great extents to challenge to make known to this community that it's not about their achievements and their accolades in order to have right standing from God. He levels all of this. He says, no, for Jew and Gentile, for everyone across all the world, it's about faith in Jesus. And he knew that a supplemented Christ was a supplanted Christ. That if you were going to add something to Jesus, then Jesus was no good to you. He doesn't need anything from you to be added on in order to give you a right standing with God. And so friends, do not play the gospel addition game. That's not where your security lies. The final thing we see here, though, in verses 1 through 10, we see that the gospel releases us into the praise of God. This happens to Paul throughout his letters, but I want you to track in verses 3 through 5 very closely. He greets the church, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch what happened? Paul actually slips. He slips from a greeting into a doxology. He gets caught up in announcing the grace and peace about how God has brought that about through Jesus according to his mysterious will hidden and bound up in his eternal counsel. That's all been made known. Then he burst into to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And friends, he is... Demonstrating to us the direction of what happens to those who have been affected and impacted and belong to this gospel, that it constitutes something in us and it's a heart of thankfulness and praise. That there is no boredom here. There is no partially, uh, partially given life to this message. That that simply can't happen. But now we freely give ourselves to God because we have been delivered. We've been liberated into a life of thanksgiving and praise. Several years ago, I had a friend planting a church in a a large urban city in the United States. It was in a slightly impoverished neighborhood that was undergoing a gentrification process. His congregation was young and vital. It had grown from nothing into something fairly substantial. They met on Sunday evenings And one Sunday evening, another clergy walked into the congregation. He found my friend right after the service, made a point to track him down. And he said, I was walking down the street, and I heard the music. In fact, what I did not hear was amplified music, but what I heard was a congregation singing at the top of their lungs and professing the creeds of the faith. He said, How did you get all these young people here? You know, every study that we've done inside of my denomination says that young people won't come, that they're not interested. And so what we've done is we've thrown out all the creeds, and we've thrown out sexuality and any other standard that you could have. We're trying to appeal to all people, and yet our churches are dying. And he explained that he had been commissioned by his diocese to figure out that problem. And so he wanted to meet with my friend to understand the magic. What's your strategy? My friend told him this will be a very short meeting. I don't have a strategy. I have a gospel. That's what I have. And why you hear singing, why you hear praise, why you hear the bold affirmation of creedal beliefs that have stood the test of time for the church is because this is what we believe. That Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again. That he will deliver us from our sins. That he will bring forth a new creation. Healing the corruption and brokenness and pollution of the present world. And that is why we sing. There's no strategy to it. It's the preaching of the gospel. And friends, when you have a gospel that has been subtracted from. Or you have a gospel that has been added to. This is noticeably what doesn't happen. There is no thanksgiving and praise. There is no liberation. There is no new creation. There's no life teeming up from it. But the gospel that's been revealed, the one that we deal with in the scriptures, that the apostles have given to us, this is the word of new creation. And when it plants itself, it's powerful, it's effective, it continues and it's constant, that it can't be held back, that it brings forth new life, it brings forth thanksgiving, it brings forth praise, it brings forth change and transformation. That's what Paul is contending for. He's a bit rude, he's direct. And thank God he is, because this is the one hope we have. And if you're like my friend standing in the middle of the National Mall, asking where it is, not understanding where you are, this is what you need. You need to be shaken, you need to be jostled, you need to be brought to your senses to recognize everything that is yours in Christ. That's the direction. That's the instincts of this letter. Let's follow it. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks that you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sent him into the world to reveal your great mysterious plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth, that through his death and in his resurrection, we are right with you. Allow us to be caught up in this great mystery. May we not add to it, may we not subtract from it, and may its fruit be brought forth in our lives. Help us, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.